So the United States Constitution is our holy of holies, an instrument of sacred import. It has been the guiding principle of the freest government on earth. Let no unhallowed hand be laid upon it. Fantastic quote from Lewis Marshall, famous constitutional and civil rights lawyer in 1928. Um, this quote by Marshall, he's, he's not alone in invoking such religious tones of praise when describing the American political system. According to Christianity Today, George Washington is our American Moses, leading us out of the slavery of Britain to a new promised land for a new nation. Uh, in the New York Times, Abraham Lincoln is our Jesus Christ, the president who died for us, quote unquote, and for our sins. Meanwhile, the Constitution is our sacred law code. The Holy Writ, described at a recent political rally in DC as the product of, quote, divine providence, intuitive intervention. God's words, the concept of godly government are woven into the warp and woof, the fabric of our nation and of this Constitution. It is rightly called the miracle in Philadelphia, unquote. But as one scholar wrote, idolatry has too often served as a convenient cover for ignorance. The popular high school history textbook narrative is that after the American Revolution, the founding fathers assembled in Philadelphia to draft a new constitution for a new government. This one would be free from the tyranny of monarchy and the U.S. Constitution, with its Republican virtues, its checks and balances, was the product of their brilliant collective minds and their political philosophy. This document was then presented to the states, who ratified it, and then a new nation was born. And what I would like to argue here is that the truth was a little more sordid, and that I think Benjamin Franklin presents a far more realistic version of what actually happened when he said, in reference to the constitutional drafters, quote, when you assemble a number of men to have the advantage of their joint wisdom, you inevitably assemble with those men all their prejudices, their passions, their errors of opinion, their local interests, and their selfish views." Unquote. And I would like to provide some historical context behind this supposedly sacred text that we can hopefully better understand how these prejudices, passions, errors of opinions, local interests, and selfish views affected the creation of the Constitution, which I would like to say is a law code born of compromise and political interest that was then foisted upon an often unwilling populace, forcibly uniting them under one nation. So if so, how did it come to that? So to jump back, the Articles of Confederation had originally been created by Congress during the recent War for Independence with the intent of providing really a, um, a, a treaty between 13 sovereign nations, similar in many ways to like a NATO or an EU. Um, they gave it the um, capabilities of declaring war, printing money to finance the war, borrow money, negotiate treaties, and appoint a military commander. Um, but it really wasn't a national government and was quite weak even when compared to the state governments. As the war wound down and the Confederation Congress tried to operate in the new peace, it became apparent pretty quickly that Congress either had too much power or not enough. The 13 states barely shared a common American identity. And not only did each state basically operate as its own independent nation, but there was also sharp cultural divides between them that dated back to the civil wars in England and beyond. And these divisions were so stark, in fact, that some of the colonial leaders um, after the war had actually suggested that since the only thing that united them was war with Britain, this is a quote, that a continuance of the war is necessary until our confederation 
is more strongly knit until a sense of the obligation to support it shall be more generally diffused amongst all ranks of American citizens and until we shall acquire the habit of paying taxes, unquote. And taxation was one of the problems that the Confederation Congress was facing, one of the chief ones. Since according to the articles, they could requisite taxes from the states, but they couldn't actually collect them or enforce them. And Congress also lacked a higher court system that would allow them to provide a single interpretation of congressional legislation. And this was particularly problematic when trying to pass international commerce regulations and treaties. And a whole host of problems accrued from this and became so bad, in fact, that James Madison later on remarked that our situation is becoming every day more and more critical. Uh, he went on to say that people unanimously agree that the existing Confederacy is tottering to its foundation. The Articles neither has nor deserves advocates. No money is paid into the public treasury. No respect is paid to the federal authority. Not a single state complies with the congressional requisitions. Several pass them over in silence, and some positively reject them. He said, it is not possible that a government can last long under these circumstances in which all are losing all confidence in our political system. So to address these issues, then a convention was called in Annapolis in 1786 in order to propose some amendments to the articles, particularly with regards to the taxing power. However, the response was entirely lackluster, to say the least. The regional interests among the states were far too strong at the time for them to grant Congress powers that looked a lot like the cause of the previous war. And in the end, there were only five states that sent a grand total of 12 delegates, which really just wasn't enough for them to actually be able to pass anything. So in response to this, they proposed, the delegates did, that, a, um, that they have a second convention in May of the following year in Philadelphia. But it's extremely doubtful that this convention would have received any more support from the states than had the one at Annapolis. Um, but then there was an armed uprising in Massachusetts that winter. And this uprising, which became known as Shays' Rebellion, was basically a tax revolt. Most of the participants were veterans from the American Revolution. And while they had been off fighting in the war, Congress and the states had been hard at work depreciating the dollar and digging themselves into debt. And to, uh, to figure out then, okay, well, we have these soldiers, how are we going to pay them? Congress decided to issue them IOU certificates um, that would be paid after the war was over. However, as the war ended, it became pretty apparent that these certificates were not going to get paid. And they, uh, they almost had a coup, in fact, over this, the military almost marching on the Capitol. Many of the soldiers had by this point racked up huge debts from being away from their farms for so long and basically figured, if I'm not going to get paid, I might as well try to make something off of this. And they determined to, um, a lot of them sold them actually to wealthy speculators who bought them up at 10 cents on the dollar. Um, and perhaps not surprisingly, a lot of the wealthy individuals who bought up these certificates were highly influential in Congress and immediately began to pressure the state and federal governments to pay off these certificates with interest. And in some cases, this allowed them to make as much as a 30% annual return off of these certificates. But the government's still strapped for money. So in order to pay these, they began attempting to raise taxes on the same people who had sold the certificates. And farmers across the country, unable to pay their taxes, were forced to foreclose on their property which in turn was bought up by the same handful of speculators who had 
bought their certificates. And in some counties, as many as 70% of the taxpaying farmers were forced into foreclosure. And um, up to 10% in some cases were in debtor's prison. Um, you can imagine this created a huge backlash in many of the states. And some began to issue debtor and tax relief laws. And that in turn created an outcry from the certificate holders. They complained that the state governments were both unwilling and unable to protect private property, and that only a more centralized government, free from the mob, could ensure the enforcement of congressional and state taxes necessary to pay the debt owed them. However, Massachusetts, heeding this, doubled down and increased the property requirement for political participation. They increased taxes and began actively enforcing foreclosures. This then provoked large-scale armed uprising in the backcountry, which the governor eventually managed to put down violently with out-of-state mercenaries. And the spectator, uh, the specter, sorry, of more uprisings cropping up across the backcountry, as there were a lot of rumors at this point that this was going to be occurring all over the, uh, the Appalachian area, particularly in the backcountry, thoroughly alarmed those in Congress. And uh, so that when it came time to send delegates to the convention in Philadelphia, it received far more support than its predecessor in Annapolis had. Um, as a side note, Rhode Island still distrusted the convention and refused to send any delegates and so was not represented actually at the, uh, at the Constitutional Convention. And Rhode Island was not wrong to distrust this convention. As although the delegates were supposed to represent the states, the population across the country tended far more towards Republican representation than did the delegates. In the words of Alexander Hamilton, the delegates tended to be, quote, men of property who wish a government of the Union able to protect them against domestic violence and the depredations which the democratic spirit is apt to make on property, unquote. According to him, it was only right and proper that the convention be defined by such an anti-democratic and pro-aristocratic leaning since only a ruling junto could hold back the passions of the mob. And as Washington wrote to John Jay, men will not adopt and carry into execution measures best calculated for their own good without the intervention of a coercive power. So to protect the convention and its discussions from the prying eyes of the masses and prevent popular outrage, one of the first things the delegates did was to swear themselves to secrecy as to the proceedings, and they then closed the convention to the public so that no one was aware of what was being discussed during the convention. And in fact, uh, the notes to the convention were not public until 1821, and Madison's more complete notes were not published until 1840. Madison himself later remarked after the convention that without this secrecy, no constitution would ever have been adopted by the convention. And uh, so right out of the starting gate, the convention was off to some very sketchy legal proceedings. The delegates had been strictly and explicitly tasked by their state governments to propose corrections to the Articles of Confederation. However, at Madison's request, the delegates from Virginia and Pennsylvania met privately prior to the convention to discuss a document that he had been drafting. And then on opening day of the convention, they proposed that the delegates ignore their instructions and instead of debating amendments to the Articles, that instead they abolish the existing government, abolish the independent state governments, and replace them with a single central national state based on an entirely new constitution that Madison had prepared. Edmund Randolph, representing Virginia, 
announced that attempts to reform the Articles of the Confederation with a, quote, merely federal, unquote, government were insufficient to preserve the, quote, common defense, security of liberty, and general welfare of the states, unquote. And instead, they should replace the Confederation with a national government consisting of a supreme legislative, judiciary, and executive. Governor Morris, representing Pennsylvania, explained that while a federal government was a, quote, mere compact resting on the good faith of the parties, unquote, the American people, and in fact all people, required a government consisting of, and again to quote him, one supreme power and one only. This new government that they proposed, um, which was labeled the Virginia Plan, would be granted not only unlimited taxing power directly over individuals, but broad direct control over commerce. It would be given extremely broad military powers to put down future uprisings. It would have a judiciary, in addition to the expanded legislative branch, and a near monarchical executive. It would have a national court system to ensure supremacy over the states. States would be represented in Congress purely by proportional representation, by population, basically meaning that Virginia and Pennsylvania would dominate the House. Congress would have veto power over state laws, which would essentially reduce the state governments to glorify county governments. And the state governments would have no say in picking the national government. Instead, the system that they had rigged up was that um, um, the people would elect the House, the House would elect the Senate, and the House and the Senate together would both end up picking the president, which would radically overhaul the current system that was in place where the state legislatures were in absolute control over the congressional government um, to one where they had zero. Basically, it was designed around the British political system with the House corresponding to the House of Commons, the Senate to the House of Lords, which would function essentially as a permanent aristocracy with no popular oversight or regulation, according to Alexander Hamilton, who, um, as I mentioned before, he was present representing New York. Um, this didn't go down without a fight, and some of the delegates immediately protested that they had been explicitly restrained to amendments of a federal nature, and that no state would have concurred in sending deputies to the convention if it had been supposed the deliberations were to turn on a consolidation of the states and a national government. If they were to proceed with such a proposal, then they were, um, quote some of the delegates there, declaring that the convention does not act under the authority of the recommendation of Congress, and therefore their business was at an end. The nationalists responded by declaring that, quote, when the salvation of the republic was at stake, it would be treason to our trust not to propose what we found necessary, unquote. And according to Randolph, he said, the ordinary cautions must be dispensed with. And the true question is whether we shall adhere to the federal plan or introduce the national plan. The insufficiency of the former has been fully displayed by the trial already made. And only a national government could save the American people from anarchy. And Edmund Randolph begged, he begged it to be considered that the present is the last moment for establishing one. After this select experiment, the people will yield to despair. Hamilton then declared that the delegates had been instructed by the states to establish a good government, and they owed it to our country to do on this emergency whatever we should deem essential to its happiness. The states sent us here to provide for the exigencies of the Union, to rely on and propose any plan not adequate to these exigencies, merely because it was not clearly within our powers, would be to sacrifice the means to the end." Unquote. 
In Hamilton's opinion, Congress had demonstrated that as a representative of the states, it was totally inadequate to unite the people without falling prey itself to the interests of the states that it was supposed to, um, to rule over. A single national government was essential to American success. And a few days later, Hamilton would then go on to make the case that, quote, the general power, whatever be its form, if it preserves itself, must swallow up the state powers. Otherwise, it will be swallowed up by them. It is against all the principles of a good government to vest the requisite powers in such a body as Congress. Two sovereignties cannot coexist within the same limits. Giving power to Congress must eventuate in a bad government or no government, unquote. And uh, despite the protests of a vocal minority, when the convention put it to a vote, the delegates voted six to one that it was in their authority to veer from their state injunctions. Several of the delegates then actually walked out of the convention, convinced that staying would be a betrayal of their state governments. And this, in fact, left New York um, unrepresented for the rest of the convention, because enough of the delegates had left. Um, the remaining delegates, despite agreeing to discuss replacing the articles, so they were in agreement as far as that was concerned, they didn't wholly embrace the Virginia plan as it had been proposed by Madison. And specifically, a group of delegates from the smaller states balked at a system of proportional representation by population, which they claimed had only been designed to attract the support of the larger states. So the delegates from these smaller states then drew up the New Jersey plan with numerous changes, including that states receive equal representation as currently existed under the Articles. This, in turn, then caused a vicious back and forth since these changes created a domino effect in the Virginia plan's carefully thought out hierarchy of power, uh, which, as I had mentioned earlier, was designed to limit state sovereignty and remove popular control. Um, several of these delegates actually threatened to walk out of the convention, however, if the states didn't receive equal representation. Other special interest groups then began also pushing for more power and representation in the new government. And for a month, the delegates bitterly fought over these sectional issues, lashing out against each other's motives and personal characters, uh, in some cases getting quite, quite extreme. And it genuinely looked like the convention was going to just come to an end. And Washington even wrote to Hamilton saying that he was sorry that he'd ever come, that the whole thing was going to end in disaster. So. Faced with the ongoing battle between the Virginia and New Jersey plans, the Connecticut delegates then proposed the Connecticut Compromise. And this basically was an attempt to combine both the Virginia and the New Jersey plans. Um, this, however, created a whole new grouping of uh, a whole new topic for debate. And after numerous more debates and arguing back and forth, the Connecticut, Com Connecticut Compromise was barely approved. Uh, in part because the Georgia delegates had left the convention to attend to other affairs. So the uh, Connecticut Compromise was, um, was approved. Proponents of the original Virginia plan, however, were thoroughly upset and disgusted by the turn of events. And um, they said that the Compromise Constitution was basically the product of extortion by various regional interests. Madison bitterly complained that the powers granted to Congress and the Constitution were insufficient and would, quote, neither effectually answer its national object nor prevent the local mischiefs which everywhere excite disgust against the state governments, unquote. 
According to Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton also denounced the Constitution as, quote, a shilly-shally thing of mere milk and water which couldn't last and was only good as a step to something better, unquote. And Robert Morris also confided that Hamilton had expressed a great dislike for the Constitution, quote, believing all Republican governments to be radically defective, unquote. George Washington also admitted that he was not a, quote, blind admirer of the, of the Constitution, though he was fully persuaded it is the best that can be obtained at this day. And he then went on to say that the warmest admirers uh, and friends and supporters of the Constitution do not contend that it is free from imperfections. Governor Morris then said that it was the best that was to be attained and that he would take it with all its faults. So the hardcore nationalists grudgingly signed their names to it and James McHenry of Maryland overcame his opposition, agreeing to sign it, saying, I distrust my own judgment, especially as it is opposite to the opinion of a majority of gentlemen whose abilities and patriotism are of the first class. And despite the nationalists' frustration with the finished product, they figured this was the only constitution they were going to get, and so they presented it to the people, ultimately, as though they had enthusiastically supported it from the beginning. But at the Constitutional and Ratifying Conventions, there were delegates that, in fact, were on the opposite side of the spectrum who completely refused to sign such a centralizing document. Um, George Mason of Virginia announced very strongly that, quote, I would sooner chop off my right hand than put it to the Constitution as it now stands, unquote. And then he said that the dangerous power and structure of the government would lead to a tyrannical aristocracy. William Grayson of Virginia complained that never before had there existed a social compact upon the face of the earth so vague and indefinite as the one now on the table, and that it had been purposefully organized so as to form an aristocratic body. And this sentiment was echoed by many others, including famously by Patrick Henry, who said of the Constitution that it squints towards monarchy. As can be expected, the Constitution was also very polarizing among the general populace, actually splitting the population of the United States straight down the middle between those for and against ratification, ranging along the spectrum of some cheering it on, some reluctantly agreeing that it was better than nothing, some claiming it perhaps might be acceptable with certain changes, and others insisting that the convention had exceeded its authority and that if ratified, the government would tyrannize them and that the people would, quote, in future, be perfectly contented if our tongues be left to us to lick the feet of our well-born masters, unquote. So while crowds in Baltimore, Boston, New York City, and Richmond cheered the constitutional ratification, people in Albany simultaneously burnt copies of the Constitution. In South Carolina, they actually carried a funeral in procession that was painted black and they solemnly buried it as an emblem of the dissolution and internment of public liberty. In Pennsylvania, it was reported that west of the Susquehanna River, quote, at least nine out of every 10 people would at the risk of their lives and their property be as willing to oppose the new constitution as they were the British in their late designs, unquote. And there was this fantastic little poem that was published in some of the newspapers, warning of the coming tyranny that went, Though British armies could not prevail, yet British politics shall turn the scale. In five short years of freedom weary grown, we quit our plain republics for a throne. Congress and president full proof shall bring a mere disguise for parliament and king. So there was a lot of opposition. Um, 
And so then in the face of all this, however, how exactly then did the Constitution get ratified if, like I said, it was approximately split 50-50? Well, the Nationalists had several factors on their side. Supporters of the new national government tended to be persons of wealth and prestige, and their opinion held a great deal of sway. And on numerous occasions, they censured opponents of ratification by claiming that only the most arrogant would suggest that such a body of esteemed men did not know what was best for the people. Nationalists almost exclusively controlled the, new, the national news outlets, and they routinely lied and contradicted one another concerning the original tent behind constitutional legislation, depending on which readers that they were selling to. Sometimes they sold the Constitution as a populist document, sometimes as an aristocratic one. And the system of ratification itself was manipulated by the nationalists. Under the Articles, it had been necessary to acquire a unanimous vote, a vote from all the states. Um, but under the new Constitution, only a majority vote was necessary in order to achieve ratification. So what this meant was that only nine of the 13 states would actually vote on whether or not to form a new nation. And the other four then were simply voting on whether or not they would join that nation. And if they chose to remain independent, then per the Constitution, they would face severe trade restrictions and would fall outside of US military aid if Britain came knocking. So nationalists rushed through ratification in the first nine states where they were most confident that they could achieve a positive vote. They moved so quickly, in fact, in some cases, that they didn't even have time to read the Constitution, let alone debate it. And furthermore, rather than these delegates representing the general will of the people, voter fraud and malapportionment swung the vote in as many as eight of the state conventions in favor of ratification. Malapportionment was so bad that in three states, the majority of the convention delegates voted in favor of ratification, despite the majority of the populace actually opposing it. Meanwhile, while nationalists were busy acquiring ratifications from the necessary nine states, in Virginia and New York, which were two of the most powerful and populous states, where the nationalists were in the minority, rather than putting ratification to a vote, they kept pushing for more time to debate the issue until the new government had already been announced. After that, not wanting to be left out in the dark, Virginia and New York then both reluctantly agreed to join the Union and joined as states 10 and 11. So the Nationalists had won. Thousands rushed out to cheer the new government, um, but in some corners there were loud and angry cries of foul play. Elsewhere, violent protesters clashed in the streets, and Rhode Island and North Carolina continued to hold out against Union, in fact refusing to join until a Bill of Rights had been guaranteed, which um, they didn't, in fact, Rhode Island didn't join until after Washington was in fact elected president. And disunion always rumbled right under the surface. And in just a few short years after adopting the Constitution, America's first president would be leading 13,000 federal troops to put down the next tax revolt. And thus was born on this continent a new nation. Um, so really just in conclusion, I have to leave with one final thought, that conservative Americans have long cherished our nation indivisible, united by our government of the people. But if it's true that the founders sold our forefathers a bill of goods, if we're not united by an idealistic political system of checks and balances, 
but rather by an artificial, an artificial national union. If the American founding really was just politics as usual, then is it really the way forward to follow Washington's charge that he made later on um, to sacredly maintain what Madison later claimed was our political scriptures? Maybe being politically conservative isn't the answer if what we're trying to conserve was never originally the solution to America's problems. Thank you.